Good evening, all. Welcome to Summerhill Church this evening. It's really good to have you with us. Uh, my name's Steve Frederick. I'm the senior minister here. And we're going to be working through the second of the readings uh, that uh, Bron read for us a little time ago. Uh, so it'd be great if you opened up to chapter 5 uh, of 1 Timothy. That's page one th- uh, 1,193. Uh, and that'll be very handy to have that there. Um, as we look at it together. Uh, On the bottom of your service outline sheets, uh, you'll see a little QR code as well. Uh, And as usual, if there are any questions, things that I do touch on that you want to ask further clarification on, things I don't touch on uh, that you'd like to ask me about, uh, please do feel free to jot down any questions and submit them via that online little form. um, And we'll see if we've got a chance to come back to them uh, later on this evening. Well, Australians are known for their, at least reputedly, bold egalitarian ethos, for dismantling hierarchical structures of status and class and trying to see everyone just as being the same as one another, getting everyone on the same level. Some people suggest that it goes back to our convict heritage, where we were all pretty much bottom of the heap, Uh, and we learn to distrust those who are above us, and we just like to pull everyone down to the same level. I've got no idea where it came from, or even how genuine it is, but it's certainly something we tell about ourselves, that we're egalitarian as a people. But we could ask the question of whether or not our egalitarian tendencies are always expressed in the most healthy ways, whether our version of egalitarianism is actually really a very healthy dynamic. Often the Aussie kind of egalitarianism simply cuts down to size anyone who might happen to be shown a little bit more honour than the rest of us. You know, we we like to see everyone pretty much on the same level, maybe a little bump on honour if it's on the sporting field or something like that. But if anyone gets any sustained kind of honour that's more than the average, we like to bring them back to the pack, sometimes in pretty heartless kinds of ways. It's what we call the tall poppy syndrome. Cut down anyone whose honour stands too far out above anyone else's. But is a cynical and dismissive mockery always the best or even the only safeguard against elitism, against getting ahead of ourselves, taking our honour too seriously? Now, this vexed question of showing public honour was a question that needed urgent attention in the congregations in Ephesus that that Timothy was overseeing, that Timothy was uh, exercising his almost like a bishop kind of role over. And we've been working our way through Paul's letter to Timothy, this younger man who was acting as a bishop for the church communities in the city of Ephesus. And in chapter 5, the one that we're going to look at today and next week, we see Paul grappling with this question of who within the church community is worthy of honour, as well as how to respond to those who wrongly demand honour or who, if they have it, abuse it and misuse it, whether that's financially misusing their honour or relationally taking advantage of the honour that others show them. Uh, Paul leads off, though, with some more general advice to Timothy about honouring others. We'll we'll have a look at the first two verses of chapter 5. They weren't read for us before. 
um, chapter 5, verses 1 to 2, where Paul gives some more general advice. And, and I want you to notice here that these verses aren't simply words just given to us, the average person sitting in the pew. These were words that were first written to Timothy, who held the position of overseer of all of the Ephesian churches. He had, you could say, the most elevated honour or status. And yet, Paul says this to him. Verse, chapter 5, verse 1. Do not rebuke an older man harshly, but rather exhort him as if he were your father. Treat younger men as brothers, older women as mothers, and younger women as sisters with absolute purity. Uh, here, this word for older men or older women is a word that you might elsewhere see translated as elder. There's a, a masculine version of elder and a feminine version of the term elder. And it's not primarily or exclusively a term that's describing a formal or official office or role in the New Testament Scriptures, but it's an honorary status of distinction and leadership. It was a term that was recognising someone's seniority, their, in, their integrity, their long history perhaps of community service uh, and leadership, whether or not they were in a specifically appointed or elected role. It was usually used of those who were literally the older members of a community, those who were entrusted by the rest of the community with important decisions and the care of the community as a whole. I don't think we have any strict comparison between the role of wardens and parish councils and elders. We don't tend to think as a culture in terms of especially honouring those who are the older members of the church community. But I do think that there's something of a similar overlap. It's a, a, an honorary recognition of their trusted status within the church community that sometimes came along with some kind of responsibility and leadership recognition. But even as a bishop, as one who was exercising ordained authority over all the churches of Ephesus, as one who was exercising the apostolic authority to correct and to rebuke, Timothy was still to exercise his office in a manner that honoured those who were his elders. He was to exhort his male elders, not harshly rebuke them. He was to relate to his female elders with a dignity and affection and respect that someone might show their own mother. Even though he was a bishop and had the highest office that anyone locally living and working in the churches in Ephesus had, he was still to honour those who were its elders. But this wasn't just some unthinking culture of, you know, respect your elders, that if you're young, you're to be seen but not heard, but the elders were to be given all the dignity and honour without question. For not only was Timothy to fittingly honour those who were his elders, he was also to honour and elevate those who were younger than him. Did you notice that? He is to treat the younger men not as upstarts to be belittled or put in their place. He was to treat the younger men under him as brothers. And he was to treat the younger women with the same integrity and honour that you'd treat your own sister, as, you'd, as those who share equally in your own family honour 
And quite frankly, that was an honour that was never extended to the younger women in the ancient world, let alone often even to those who were older. Yes, there was an egalitarian vibe to the early Christian church, but it wasn't the Aussie version of equality, the Aussie version of egalitarianism, where those who were rightly deserving of honour were just cut down to size to fit in with the rest of us. But this was a situation where even those who had no recognisable claim to recognition or status or standing were actually honoured and elevated above their social standing. That's what it looks like to honour one another in the Christian community, to raise up those who had no recognised status, not to cut down those who might have been rightly honoured. Paul affirms the legitimacy of honouring others, particularly the elders in the church, and yet he's not blind or clueless about how that kind of honouring elders can be abused or go sideways if not carefully paid attention to. He goes on to speak about two specific categories of elder whose honour could be taken advantage of and abused. Uh, This evening we're going to look at the example of those elders who taught and preached, the overseers, and next week we'll look at the example of the widows, uh, another group of elders in the church who were officially recognised and honoured. And in both cases, the honour that was due to them could be terribly abused and misused if taken for granted. We're going to look at the overseers, those who were the teaching and preaching elders uh, over the course of this evening. So flip ahead with me to the reading uh, that Bron read for us uh, in verse 17 is where we'll, we'll continue on from. Uh, the bit before is mainly looking at widows. We'll come back to that next week. But verse 17. The elders who direct the affairs of the church well are worthy of double honour, especially those whose work is preaching and teaching. Not only is there legitimacy, Paul says, in honouring one's elders in general, uh, as he was speaking about back in chapter 5, verses 1 and 2, but there are some elders, Paul says, who are worthy of double honour, whatever on earth that phrase is supposed to mean. Uh, Those who direct the affairs of the church, that is, those whose work is preaching and teaching. Uh, Some suggest here that Paul is speaking about two categories of leading elders. Uh, There are the non-teaching elders and the teaching elders. And there's these two categories who are worthy of double honour, but one a little bit more worthy of double honour than the other. And yet, interestingly, Paul never describes a class of non-teaching leaders or pastors in the church. In fact, the leading elder or overseer, Paul says back in chapter 3, must be able to teach. And that's because to pastor, the word just means to shepherd, that's what the word pastor means, to shepherd God's flock is to lead by preaching and teaching. That's how the elders of God's church, the overseers, are to lead. Um, We've had uh, uh, sent out an email news, an e-news this past week, uh, and in it is a link to a special webpage we've set up where I've been starting to post all the different resources, the papers and descriptions and videos and Q&As that we've been going along with our 1 Timothy series. And right down the bottom of the page, I've posted a link to a talk 
that I didn't do, someone much better uh, in sync with New Testament scholarship than me uh, has done, that links this idea of how New Testament church leadership was really seen in its essence in its preaching and teaching of those who were appointed as overseers. You might like to chase that up later on if it's something you're particularly interested in. In verse 17, Paul is saying that those elders or overseers who lead well, that is, namely, those elders or overseers who teach and preach well, are worthy of double honour, of some particular honour or recognition. Uh, this word especially, uh, I don't think it actually has here a, a comparative idea. Some a little bit, others much more. Rather, it's a word that can equally be translated, namely, that is, uh, those who lead well, namely those who preach and teach. And Paul repeatedly uses this word throughout 1 Timothy, 2 Timothy, his letters to Titus, to narrow down and make more specific exactly who it is that he's speaking about. And I've put on your service sheets there uh, some references to how this word, namely or more specifically, uh, is often used. But what is the double honour? What shape might honouring an overseer, a teaching or preaching elder, what shape might that actually take? What honour are they worthy of that exceeds the honour you might show your average um, elder in the church community? I think verse 18 does indicate at least one aspect of what this double honour might include. Have a look with me at chapter 5, verse 18. Chapter 5, verse 18. After having spoken about those, uh, particularly whose work is preaching and teaching, Paul goes on to say, For Scripture says, Do not muzzle an ox while it is treading out the grain, and the worker deserves his wages. This image here is drawn from the Old Testament, uh, the image of an ox who does the hard work of treading out grain walking round and round over the tops of the, the wheat that have been harvested and placed in a circle, the, the ox walks round and round on top of it, and as it walks on it, it separates out the husk from the kernel, the inner kernel of the grain. And the ox, the Old Testament says, is rightly to be sustained from the work that they perform in order to sustain the farmers who are working them. And likewise, Paul says, with overseers those elders who sustain God's people in the work that they do, teaching and preaching. Now, this is something that our churches do in Sydney particularly and especially well. I don't think I actually need to spend a whole lot of time going in to reflect on this because it's something that our churches take great care in doing. Uh, we have a parish council that were appointed just a few weeks ago, and they set all the policies for the financial support and care of staff, teaching staff particularly, and ministry staff like myself and Lauren. And the wardens are those who execute the policy that the parish council sets. Lauren and I don't have to get involved in any way in terms of the finances of the church. We don't have any particular say in how we get remunerated. The parish council and the wardens take care of that for us. We are very, very well looked after. Thank you. You love and care for us and honour us enormously by making those kind of provisions. And yet this honour to be shown to overseers and other pastoral teaching staff is certainly not exclusively couched 
in financial terms. I've got there on your sheet a reference to Hebrews chapter 13, uh, and I'm going to read out a verse that is appearing up there on the screen for you as well. There, the writer of Hebrews urges those who are reading uh, or listening to his sermon, have confidence in your leaders and submit to their authority because they keep watch over you as those who must give an account. Do this so that their work will be a joy, not a burden, for that would be of no benefit to you. Exactly what kind of leadership authority is it that the writer of Hebrews is urging believers to submit to here from their leaders? What's the sphere? What's the nature of? What's the, the scope of the authority that the writer of Hebrews is referring to? at this point. Uh, Hebrews speaks of church leaders as those who keep watch over God's people, those who keep watch over God's flock, ensuring that they're not devoured, especially by false teachers. Pastors, as I mentioned before, that word that just means shepherds of God's flock, they lead the church by teaching the truths of the Christian faith, not by wielding indiscriminate or arbitrary directive control over everyone's lives. Teaching and preaching is the essence of what church leadership looks like, and it's especially to that teaching that God's people are to submit. The overseer's authority is to teach, not just to express generalised leadership rank over everything church, decision-wise, but even so, the Scriptures do identify an overseer's leadership in teaching as something that needs to be submitted to. God's flock are called to entrust themselves to the overseer's teaching in a way that's not true for the speech of every other person in the church community. Now, don't get me wrong, this doesn't mean that only overseers should teach and address the church community in speaking God's Word. Not at all the case. But while other people might rightly prophesy and exhort and encourage and pray and sing and even in other circumstances teach one another, overseers alone will be held to account by God for overseeing and guiding the spiritual health of the church community through their teaching role. And yet, just because there is a legitimacy to honouring leaders as their due absolutely does not mean that the honour they're due is without limits. In fact, often the more honour someone is due, then the more specific we'll likely have to be about the limits and shape of that honour to be shown to them. As James warns, those who teach will be judged with a greater strictness. And Paul goes on to unpack for us a little, bit what, uh, a little bit more about what the limits are of the honour that should be shown to church leaders and overseers particularly. Uh, let's have a look at some of those limits. Uh, glance down with me to verse 19. Verse 19. Do not entertain an accusation against an elder unless it's brought by two or three witnesses. But those elders who are sinning you are to reprove before everyone so that the others may take warning. Uh, it's not only before God, on the last day, that teachers should expect to be held to account. 
those who preach and teach are authorised to be making public judgments concerning the truths of the Christian faith and the gospel that we as a community hold to. The ultimate goal of holding to those truths, Timothy, uh, Paul is telling Timothy earlier on in chapter 1, is that love would be seen and evidenced within the church community. But wherever an overseer's teaching or an overseer's behaviour instead begins to promote their own interests, then the public honour that they're due is never to shield them from public accountability. Uh, But Paul does say that this public accountability is to be handled with care. Only those accusations, Paul says, that are established by two or three witnesses, Timothy should proceed to actually taking action upon. How do you understand that warning, that little caveat there? Isn't the expectation of having two or three witnesses a pretty high bar in some circumstances, in some situations? Mightn't some of the most grievous sins that church leaders commit against vulnerable people be perpetrated outside of public view, where it might not actually be that easy to establish two or three witnesses? What are we to do with this particular instruction that Paul gives to Timothy? Paul is quoting here this general maxim that pops up several times throughout the Old Testament. Uh, If you want to look at uh, a verse later on, you might have to look up uh, Deuteronomy chapter 17, uh, if you want to jot that down. It's an instruction that has been given multiple times to God's people in order that they take care to avoid acting upon malicious accusations. That is, accusations that are deliberately designed to cause trouble and strife. And yet, both Jesus in Matthew, I put these two verses on your sheets, both Jesus in Matthew chapter 18 and the Apostle Paul himself in 2 Corinthians apply this general principle in a way that doesn't require two or three eyewitnesses before taking action. Rather, what Paul and Jesus both say in the New Testament is that at least two or three church members must agree that this matter really warrants being seriously investigated and publicly addressed. This little principle isn't always claiming and demanding that eyewitnesses must be involved, but that there must be at least a group of church believers who agree, concur with one another, that it's serious enough to be addressed publicly. Uh, In Sydney, we have a particular group who are set aside to make that easier to do. Uh, As you can no doubt imagine, there are particular wrongs that church leaders have often committed that makes it very difficult to go and find others in a church community to gather together and assess whether or not something publicly should be addressed or done about it. We have a group called the Office of the Director of Safe Ministry, Uh, And the details of this office are going to be popped up on the screen at the end of the service. It used to be called the PSU, uh, the Professional Standards Unit. And it is there, it has been instituted in Sydney churches, especially to help in situations that are beyond the expertise or the impartiality of regular church members, where church members just don't have the knowledge or the insight to know what should be done in a situation with an elder or an overseer sinning, or where they just don't have the impartiality that's needed for proper decision-making to occur, they can go to the office of the Director of Safe Ministry and express their concerns there, 
and that group can function, kind of like that group of two or three witnesses, to affirm when and where and when public action should be taken against church leaders. I'm going to encourage you at the end of the service, maybe to take a photo of that slide when it pops up on the screen. Maybe you're never going to need it, but maybe you're going to find yourself in a situation down the track where someone else may, and I'd encourage you to have those details on hand. Because, friends, the liabilities of ignoring an overseer's sin are simply too grievous just to default to protecting the honour of those who are elders amongst us. Uh, Paul goes on in the remainder of the passage to outline three liabilities, three dangers that can come along with honouring those leaders who continue to sin. Uh, The first issue at stake has already been highlighted for us in verse 20 where Paul says a public response to their sin, not simply a private response, is critical for communicating that a leader's sin won't be enabled, mustn't be enabled in the church community. If a church's response to a teacher's sin is to just make exceptions, to just sweep it under the rug, then the integrity of the entire community will likely begin to unravel at some point. Not only will the overseer's teaching and preaching ministry be compromised and undermined by this secrecy and favouritism and partiality, but it will probably also likely embolden others in their sin as well when they see that, well, if the overseer's getting away with it and no one's saying a word, why on earth am I bothering with being careful about how I act or treat others? But even more seriously... To continue showing an overseer honour out of favouritism or partiality, it's an offence to God himself. Have a look with me at verse 21 and following. Verse 21 and following. Paul continues in his writing to Timothy, I charge you in the sight of God and Christ Jesus and the elect angels to keep these instructions without partiality and to do nothing out of favoritism. Do not be hasty in the laying on of hands and do not share in the sins of others. Keep yourself pure. Stop drinking only water and use a little wine because of your stomach and your frequent illnesses. Uh, In his oversight of the Ephesian church leaders, Timothy is to remember that God himself, that Christ Jesus the judge himself, and all of his appointed angels are all witnesses to the sins of these church leaders, whether those sins are ever publicly acknowledged or exposed or not. Even if the church community doesn't see them, Timothy is reminded, God does. If Timothy were simply to turn a blind eye to the sins of overseers, if Timothy were even just to carelessly, uh, quickly and pragmatically be appointing church overseers who turn out later on to be untrustworthy, then he himself will in some sense be complicit in their sin. Timothy will shoulder some responsibility, he'll bear some guilt for the harm that such church leaders ultimately cause the church. Friends, this is why, one of the reasons why we pray for Michael Stead, who is our local regional bishop. 
He is the one to whom reports of failing church leadership often are directed. He's the one who needs to take on board the advice of the PSU or the Office of Oversight. He's the one who needs to meet with churches and deal with situations in which church leaders have created great hurt and harm. We need to pray for him that he not overlook such reports of mistreatment because even if the churches never come to hear of what's happened, God does, the Lord Jesus does, the angels do, and Michael's going to be held to account for that. Let's pray for him and be supportive of those like Michael, our bishop, who need to take these actions on occasion. I wonder if it was perhaps the stress of that kind of responsibility that had resulted in Timothy's gut problems that are surprisingly mentioned there in verse 23. This uh, little bit of an instruction or advice to drink a little bit of wine together with the water, not just to drink water. Or perhaps, I'm not really sure, perhaps Paul is just gently noting that a little bit of care, a little bit of self-care for Timothy is a very different sort of matter to the indulging, self-serving lifestyles that was typical amongst the Ephesian church leaders. Saying to Timothy, perhaps, look, look after yourself. That doesn't put you in the same category as these self-indulgent, self-serving leaders that you're having to deal with. I'm not sure exactly, specifically, why that mention of the wine there with the water is included. But either way, Timothy is to be exceedingly cautious in entrusting the role of an overseer to any elder. People's sins are not always easy to name let alone even to recognise sometimes. Have a look with me at um, uh, verses 24 to 25 to end out our passage. Verse 24. Paul writes, The sins of some are obvious, reaching the place of judgment ahead of them. The sins of others trail behind them. In the same way, good deeds are obvious, and even those that are not obvious cannot remain hidden forever. While some people's sins are so obvious that it might disqualify them from church leadership right from the outset, maybe even before their names are really even seriously considered or put up for consideration, other people's sins won't always be so easily identified or noticed. Sometimes the pattern of behaviour that even recommends someone as a hot leadership potential in their early 20s are later revealed to be part of a more concerning and ultimately damaging pattern of behaviour that could do great harm to a church community if they go unnoticed or unaddressed. We had a question submitted to us uh, last week that we didn't have a chance to answer then, but I thought is worth reflecting on at this point in tonight's talk. And the question was this, does the Bible distinguish between the formal ministry of a paid minister versus the ministry of a lay person in the church? And I think from looking at tonight's passage, the answer has to be a definite yes, the Bible does distinguish between them, but not primarily on the basis of one being paid and the other being unpaid or on the basis of one being a formal ministry and the other being an informal ministry. I actually don't think things are often really anywhere near that clear cut. I think instead the distinction is on the basis 
of how they are responsible for what they do with that ministry, how they are going to be held accountable for the way in which they conduct it. We've seen this evening that the church has been called to submit to the teaching and preaching leadership, especially of those who are appointed as overseers. Their leadership isn't absolute, but there is something that is distinct. We are to entrust ourselves to an overseer's teaching in the same way that isn't demanded by the kind of teaching we might show one another in Bible study groups or in our youth ministries or in our prophesying when we share those words of encouragement and exhortation at various points in church life. And those overseers we've seen this evening are going to be held to account for the safety of God's flock, especially from false teaching, in a way that isn't laid upon everyone in their speaking ministry to one another. We can each speak the words of the gospel to build God's church up. In fact, we must do it. But overseers will be burdened with a particular responsibility and accountability for the fruit that's produced from their teaching ministry. Their preaching and teaching leadership is what is to enable the rest of the church body to perform their own public word ministry for the building up of God's flock. The ministry of the overseer in his teaching and preaching is to be what fuels each of our word ministry to one another, whether that be done privately, one-to-one in our small groups, or up the front here to the entire gathered church community. So friends, can I encourage you as we wrap up this evening, and I know this sounds like a pretty pragmatic way to finish out uh, a talk at church, but be aware of who our bishop is, Michael Stead in this case. When he comes to perform confirmations or comes to visit us at church, notice how he acts. Introduce yourself to him. Even find a way maybe to get his contact details, his office contact details, and put them in your own contact details in the phone. He is there to oversee our church and all the other ones close around about us to make sure that God's people are cared for and overseen well. And keep those details of the PSU, or what's now called the Office of the Director of Safe Ministry, handy. Because we dare not leave God's people vulnerable to those who exercise their leadership in careless or even self-interested and self-serving ways. We are to ensure that those who oversee the church do it for the good of those who are God's flock. Uh, How about we pray together? Dearest Father, we pray especially for those who are your precious people. We pray particularly for those church members who have been called to entrust themselves to the teaching, preaching, leading ministry of church overseers. We pray especially, Father, for those who have been let down by those who have exercised such leadership ministry for those who have overreached their authority, for those who have used their authority in self-serving ways and as a result harmed those who are most vulnerable and have been placed into their care. Father, assure those who have suffered under poor church leadership, even under terrible church leadership, that you are attentive to them, that as your flock you care for them deeply, 
that you, God the Father, God the Son, and all of your elect angels have borne witness to those moments of injustice and will not let them pass unaddressed. Comfort and bind up your people who have been hurt. And Father, we pray for our bishops especially, that they would take seriously their role to oversee those who oversee the local churches. Give them insight and care. Give them wisdom. Give them patience and godliness in the appointments that they make, that your precious people might be cared for in a way that honours you. In Jesus' name we pray. Amen. Uh, any questions, uh, comments uh, that you'd like to make, please feel free to send those through uh, on the Q&A. Uh, it looks like we're about to stand and sing together. Correct, let's stand. <laughs>